Zach Friend, former Obama campaign spokesman and advisor to the White House, Senate, and House of Representatives, um, with just an amazing um, ability to kind of work across the aisle. You are a, a good Democrat. You work, you, you, and you've worked for other presidents beyond uh, Barack Obama. But you know, we kind of like to look at the Barack Obama presidency in our lifetimes as kind of this epic moment. Um, you are also, uh, I don't know if you do it anymore, but one of the things that we used to talk about when we were uh, really engaged in kind of issues of the day during the presidential campaign, you were a regular guest on Fox News as kind of like the resident Democrat who could kind of hold his own and articulate the position, but we're also really good about finding common ground. And uh, last but not least, you are also a county supervisor in Santa Cruz County. So you're like an elected official, you're a pundit. You're also a best-selling author, um, and you are also a professional practitioner. So I, I want to be you when I grow up, uh, except, except I think I'm older than you are, Zach. So i got a lot of catching up to do, but it's great to have you, and uh, thanks for joining Mike Drop. Appreciate it. Mike, total honor to be on with you and also to be speaking today with the audience. I mean, I know that you've got a great group of people that listen in, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, thanks, Zach. I, I, I do um, – most of my uh, – um, friends and, and tweets and people that I kind of interact with, I do, I do kind of find on Twitter and I take pride in the fact that um, even on my Twitter discussions, as, as petty and as um, salty as I can be, the folks who follow what I'm talking about tend to be a little bit more um, – they like to look under the hood a little bit and get a better understanding of kind of what's driving politics. And I, it's really important to me as a practitioner, somebody who actually does campaigns, to kind of explain things in a different way where they're not – not getting that stuff from certainly not from cable news, certainly not from kind of the pundit class, absolutely not from the partisans out there. And there's just not because of the the, the the role that we play. There's not a whole lot of political professionals who are able to just say this is what's going on. This is what that means. This is why Kevin McCarthy's putting this out. This is why Biden's using this word. And um, and I think we have a lot of fun with it. So appreciate all your feedback over the over the years and and. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion. So uh, with that, um, I'm gonna, let me tell you what I'm going to want to talk about. And I want to hear a little bit about what you're going to want to talk about. And I'm, I'm expecting folks to jump in on this. Um, I, I actually titled this one, and I hope this wasn't too offensive. What, what are the polls telling us? Because we are at that point in the election cycle now where we're going to start getting a lot of weekly polls updating us on what the state of specific races are going to look like and what the national mood of the electorate is going to be. And I'm really, really, um, well, first of all, this is the stuff I love, as you know. But, but it, more than that, uh, the polls are, are, are um, presenting us with a lot of really unique and different data sets um, as we start to see public opinion form and take shape. Um, so the positioning between the parties and the candidates and the issues um, become clearer as we head into kind of the last stretch of, of campaign season here, and that will be determinative uh, in November. So I want you to jump in. I, I'm going I'm 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 to go on a little bit of a riff here uh, too, Zach, but you've never been afraid to jump in and say, hang on, you're totally wrong there, or you forgot to add this, or let me let me add that. But, but, but I do want to – I do want to – talk a little bit about kind of what I'm seeing, and then we can get a little bit more specific. And I want, I want your opinion on how you see uh, all of this shaping up. Fair enough? Perfect. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. 
So, um, we saw three sets of polls come out so far in the post-Roe decision. Um, now, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not you can get a clean read at a time when people are really kind of shocked. The whole country's kind of, you know, taken aback. And there's no question, there's no question, um, at least in my mind, that there is some shock value um, and, and immediate anger built into these uh, post-row overturning polls. But it's also clear that the movement, and that's, that's what I, I'm looking for up until late into the election cycle, I'm looking for movement with key demographic groups. And the key demographics that I'm seeing move are, first of all, this continued erosion for Republicans with college-educated voters, women specifically. I've talked ad nauseum about this. This is the voter group that really does determine elections, but also with men now. We're seeing men move, Republican men, college-educated men who are like, okay, shit, this is, this is not good. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. this is something we've, we've heard about, we've tolerated, rolled our eyes about, never thought it would be coming, but this is where the dog has caught the car. It's caught up to it. It's got its jaws on the bumper, and now it's like, what the hell am I going to do with this thing? Uh, the second group I want to talk about is independence, which um, tends to be a little bit more uh, swingy. They, they will move a little bit more right, a little bit more left, and it's usually through this concept of what we call negative partisanship, which means they're really rejecting extremes in both parties. And, of, co- of course, if you're a partisan or a close observer – uh, and you think there's only one party with extremes, you're wrong. And I'm not trying to make an equivalency. Please don't flame on me on social media. I'm not trying to offend you or hurt anybody's feelings. But there are extreme elements in both parties, and these independents pay attention to that. They notice that, and they react to that, whether you like it or not. If you're saying, well, we're not as extreme as they are, fine, that's true. That's absolutely true. You know me, you know my work, but bottom line is people are reacting to it, and I'm much more interested in actual voting behavior than imparting my beliefs about what it is. I try to impart my beliefs after I'm seeing voting behavior. And third, Zach, and I'll, and I'll stop my long you know, speech here with this. The 18 to 25-year-old demographic, the Gen Z group, right? I had Jack Cucciarella on to talk about this a little bit. I, I, I probably a function of my my rapidly increasing age, but like I'm really don't get um, the 18 to 25 year old demographic, and and here's why. Young people in this voting group, ever since uh, since Vietnam, when we lowered the voting age to 18, um, the, the apathy has always been the issue. And I, I'd love to get your sense of what was happening in the Obama campaign in 2008 because you had a front row seat. There are few times when we have actually seen the youth vote aspirationally drive themselves to the polls, and that was one campaign that you did that you were on. But the numbers for 18 to 25-year-olds for Joe Biden are horrific. The only group that is worse than young people in this country are Republicans for Joe Biden. I mean, that's crazy talk. That's just nuts. And when I see those numbers, I think, wow, this is a problem that may not be fixable, especially when the president has tried to go toe-to-toe with explaining inflation um, uh, to the American people. And I've, I've been very critical of that, uh, that, that tactic uh, as well. 
because I don't, I don't think you should be talking about issues that you can't win on. You don't talk. You don't, you don't engage the battle on a battlefield that you can't win. But here's the thing. Roe Wade now gives the Democrats the opportunity to have young people be against the Republicans. Mm-hmm. And that's all you need. And that's why we're seeing the movement. Those three shifts in three different surveys have moved the generic ballot in some cases between up to 10 points, a 10-point swing. Uh, it's at least three. We're seeing it at least three in most of these surveys. We're seeing it at 10 now. In the next week, we're going to get a whole other round of survey work. These are very significant shifts. And as I, I think I tweeted this out, I, I don't think I've ever in 30 years of doing this seen the generic ballot move 10 points in a couple of months. So there's something there's something extraordinary, if only for the moment. I think it's going to be longer lasting. There's something extraordinary happening. I'm going to flip it to you, Zach. Give us, give us your rundown. What, what are you seeing? So what I'm seeing, Mike, is something on parallel to what you're seeing, which is that November is not a foregone conclusion. I mean, it had been written off as this assumed massive takeover by the Republicans in the House and a more moderate takeover in the United States Senate. And now, understanding that, to your point, there's some noise when you have a tectonic issue that'll show up in polls. But when you look into the subsets within the polls, some of the cross tabs, in particular on the cultural issues, those things are going to be less noisy. The opportunity for Democrats is very clear uh, on, on certain issues to run on, in particular at the local, county, and state level. And we can get more into the details on ways to amplify the vote in that situation. As you know, a national election is really just a collection of local races at the end of the day, especially in congressional districts. There are ways, I think, to motivate the bases that these polls are showing. If I were the Democrats right now, which I am, but if I were advising at a national level, I'd be looking at the shift on the independent side, looking at the shift on the women's side, and seeing in these polls this information about gun control, abortion, some of the other uh, what may be viewed as more cultural kind of issues that the Republicans, a land that they like to live in, that the Democrats could actually own much better than uh, issues such as inflation, gas prices, etc. So I would say that the key thing here is to not give up on November for one, but in particular to start amplifying these messages. So, I mean, think about here in California, where you and I are both based, you know, the legislature is putting forward a, a ballot initiative to codify, in essence, Roe, but a little bit more broadly into the state constitution. I mean, in that sense, that is a useful thing at the congressional level for some of these races that may determine the outcome in the House. In other states in the industrial Midwest, this is looked at as well. It has to be done through a ballot initiative uh, to actually qualify for a statewide constitutional amendment. There's other states, including even places like Kansas, where this is being discussed. This is exactly what needs to be playing out across the country for Democrats to be able to regain. The inflation situation, the economic outcome, how people tie that, the the general negatives that the president is facing, the wrong track numbers, which are stratospheric, are not where the world uh, are not successful for the Democrats to be running on. But you may remember, I mean, Obama was elected, reelected, uh, with some pretty significant negatives as well, overwhelmingly. And, and one of the ways that the Obama campaign in 2012 did it was by developing these more local messaging, amplifying those turnouts regarding to that. And we can get more into the details on the local side, but that's what I think is really important as the takeaway here. There are, there are cultural gifts cultural issue gifts within those polls that Democrats need to start amplifying, and they can do it now and seize on that moment. Talk to us a little bit about um, 
young voters and 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 look as an elected official you get a front row seat on on actually talking to people and thinking a little bit more about what is motivating folks than uh than i do i I look at numbers i look at cross tabs it's not it's a little bit more abstract i i for the first time like i'm having a real tough time looking at this voter group and not getting why they're just not like tuned off to biden they like don't like him they just don't like the guy is that is it a function of age, Jack, or what's going on? And, and look, you saw it. You it, it was Obama Biden, right? I mean, you were with Senator Biden on the trail, yes, in two thousand and eight. So I mean, is it a new dynamic? Was that there? What, well, what's going I mean, on? I think it's, so I think this is an interesting narrative, Mike. I mean, you and I both exist in the in the land of communications, and and the Obama campaign, and I traveled with both of them. Did went out of our way to do outreach to younger voters, in particular college, graduate school kind of voters. What was interesting is when you actually look at the voting data of 2008, uh, contrary to, I, I would guess, conventional wisdom, I mean, Obama's overall take of the youth vote was lower than Bill Clinton's. I mean, so mm. it was viewed as this huge movement, and it was portrayed as such. And I think that there's a success in the narrative, as you know, that the winner gets to define the narrative in politics or the world in general. But the reality was is that they're really post the, the Vietnam break that you're speaking about. Post, um, post Bill Clinton, there really has been an erosion overall of excitement in the youth vote altogether. But I think that this is, this is a chicken and an egg argument. As an elected official, I can tell you that, and you know this very well, we target voters that are likely voters or perfect voters, maybe three and four, four and four, five and five voters. Generally, youth voters aren't going to fit into that. Even those that would qualify for that generally only vote in the presidential. And you see this cycle. Candidates don't speak to me about issues that I care about. Candidates say, why would I try and do a motivation because of the cost associated with reaching these episodic voters? And you end up spiraling down this, this situation. I think in the Biden administration, one of the challenges has been that there were huge hopes for having the entire Congress understanding the filibuster, et cetera, has really hamstrung this. And while there was pretty significant economic relief in some of the investments in child care and other programs, at the end of the day, there wasn't that investment and there wasn't the, the shift in voting rights or equality issues that young voters were expecting. And that just turns people back off. The apathy picks up pretty significantly. I think if I were advising the president right now, one of the things I would say is that it's okay to have fights and lose. I mean, that what I think that people want is somebody to take a stand. I mean, the pushback immediately, understanding some of the legal issues with uh, abortion access on federal lands. This sort of dismissal out of hand isn't really this, the best approach from a pure messaging standpoint when you're trying to... People want to see you fighting for these things. They want to see you right. advocating for these, these measures. They want to see you mm-hmm. taking a chance within your own power as opposed to just saying, you need to elect more people to Congress and that'll change everything. You're the president of the United States. Go ahead and own the mantle of the pulpit in a way that helps motivate voters as well, in particular on these cultural issues we were just talking about. I think that's exactly right. And I think um, I just I'm not too sure it's in Joe Biden's constitution to to, to provide uh, the image of the fighter that America, certainly 18 to 25 year olds are looking for. But like I said, in a campaign, as long as they dislike your opponent more than they are not comfortable or dislike you. Uh, you can still win races, and that's what I think it's going to uh, you know, materialize, at least. And I agree with you, uh, and I'm going to take a caller in just a second, but I, I'm agreeing with you, Zach, in that for the first time in the past 72 hours, I'm saying we're to jump ball here. The Democrats are very much in this race, 
And, and prior to that, I was saying, no, they're not. Now, that's because of some unforeseen, right? It's, 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 it's watching Biden flight, fight on the Build Back Better stuff and watching them kind of fumble on, on the inflation response and the Afghanistan pullout. It's like this lumbering kind of administration. Suddenly, you get a, a, a different break. And this is why we always say, I mean, you know, a, a week, two weeks, three weeks is an eternity in politics. You have Roe versus Wade. You have, unfortunately, the Uvalde uh, massacre. You've got the January 6th hearings, which I think are having an impact. None of this stuff was foreseen uh, two months ago. So let's, uh, let's jump onto the phones. Uh, no more go. Go ahead. Uh, unmute yourself on the phone there. I'm happy to take your question. Oh, Mike, I didn't mean to be unmuted. I'm not good at using this app yet. Sorry. Okay. It, it takes a little while. I'm not either. <laughs> so don't okay. worry about it. Well, I am going to go ahead and ask a question. So if we're looking to motivate that younger that younger voter, mm-hmm. is there any value in Biden at least coming through with some of the student debt relief? Zach, I'm, I've got some strong opinions on this, but I want to hear you talk about it first. You know, look, I, I've, I've published many articles about how student debt uh, prevents people from joining into, say, public service and various things that should be done in student debt repayment programs. So I'm a big advocate for reducing the overall cost of higher education. With that said, uh, student debt as an issue is a pretty elite-focused issue that disproportionately uh, benefits a certain subset. I mean, I think that, that from a broader perspective... Uh, there's more bread and butter issues that I think youth voters are going to be interested in. Remember, most most youth aren't going to college. I mean, it's still it's still a smaller number than people think. I think that there's a whole separate process to the college's, I mean, broader question about from a policy perspective, even public schools, public uh, state universities are really putting kids in a, in a hamstring of debt that they can't get out of. I mean, second only to uh, mortgage debt, which now kids can't even afford, as you know, to buy a house. But I don't think that that issue in and of itself is a motivating issue that's going to bring people to the polls. Do I think it's the right policy? Well, I think that overall reducing debt load of young people so they can make broader choices in their life is a good decision. But I also think it also doesn't impact 70 or so percent of the population. I don't have the exact number on it. There's a lot of people that don't go to college, don't incur this kind of debt. We're not talking about trade schools and a number of other things. So I think that instead, just this overall sense of equity, in particular women's rights, on the abortion issue, the gun control issues through the roof with both high school and college uh, age voters. And I think that those are things that, that are easily within his purview and then have more macro influence across broader electorates than just the youth. Mike? I th- I, Zach, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's exactly right. I think even we can debate whether or not it's good policy. I'm not convinced that it, it is eliminating college debt, but I think it's really, really bad politics. I think that if the Democrats and if Biden specifically are looking to engage young voters, look, you said it right. Most people, 60 percent of the voters do not have a college degree. You start giving uh, 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 elimination of college debt to people who are overwhelmingly white, by the way, and upper income. And more often than not, the children of people who are college educated, that's basically giving a gift to the children of your base. Again, I'm not saying it's good or bad policy. It doesn't feel good, but it's really bad politics. So here's a couple quick political solutions. First, if you're gonna if you're gonna give you know debt relief, give it to people in trade schools. <laughs> give it give it to blue collar 
kids who, who frankly you have more trouble with than you realize you guys have heard me talk about this ad nauseum is the democrats don't understand the hispanic vote that's just clear they're losing them every cycle very quickly hispanics are the fastest growing non-college educated group of voters because they're the fastest growing segment of the non-college educated workforce how is that policy going to be viewed by this group you already have a problem with not well not well so uh, the, the key is how do we make college education more affordable on the front end and more expansive on the front end? And there are ways to do that. Being from California, you know, our community college system is, is essentially free. Um, uh, and I've been an advocate for the community college system for a long time. So when people like Bernie Sanders say stuff like we should make college free, I don't think it's that crazy or that harebrained a scheme. It's just not. Some states are doing it. It is possible. But I do have a very big problem with people who have taken on debt now seeking some sort of relief when it's really only benefiting uh, um, a population that is probably not necessarily in need of it in the first place. So thanks for the question. Uh, no more GOP. Do you, have, do you have anything else you want to, to, to bring up? Well, no, no, no. no. That's, um, I, that was my only – I guess I've been listening to you too long, Mike. Right now I don't care about <laughs> policy. All yeah. I care about is what issue can we use to win. That's all I care about. Yeah. We'll talk about policy after we win. So thank you. Great comments. Um, thank you for that. Appreciate you listening in and for your support. The good news here, again, is it's not anything the Democrats have done. It's Republican overreach, which is a really, really important to understand, is the voters are discerning between the two parties. And at this moment in time, the road decision, along with the, the inability to do anything on guns and, oh, yeah, by the way, these televised uh, evidence of, of, of an insurrection by people in the Congress are making the Republicans look pretty damn scary right now, and the voters are reacting to it. That's why you're seeing that shift in the polls. Gene, let's go ahead and jump on. Next caller. Got to unmute on the lower right uh, um, of your app there. Can you hear me now? We can hear you, Gene. Hey. I'm a real believer in trying to learn to think critically about stuff. And so I want you guys to talk about what makes a bad poll or bad analysis mm -hmm. because it's – as I get more of my information this way kind of on social media and stuff, there's a whole lot of BS filtering that has to happen, and I'd yeah. like your opinions on that. Zach, do you want to jump in on that or – um, I'll, I'll be brief because you're the better yeah. expert on this, but there are some gold standard polling companies, generally speaking. And so I think that in the easiest lay term way, I mean, Mike, you can get into the details about what makes a good poll or a bad poll, but there actually are some organizations, uh, even here in California, I think you're involved actually with one of them that are just known for high quality polls. And so maybe Mike, you can talk about some of those as well as the methods. Yeah. So, um, look, I, and, and the way to follow this, and I tried to do this with, with you all in the 2020 election cycle. Because of technology, it's gotten really cheap and easy to do quote unquote polls online. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with polls online, but we have a whole plethora of polls that come in, and very oftentimes they will say nothing. So, if, if you're going, first of all, as I've, as I've counseled in the 2020 election cycle, and I think I'm going to be doing this a lot more uh, into the stretch here, the first thing is take every poll with a little bit of grain of salt, not because they're accurate or not because they're not, but because if you focus on every poll like I do, it's probably going to have negative effects on your mental health, okay? Especially if you don't know what you're looking for. It's either going to drive you crazy or it's going to scare you or it's going to make you angry and it's going to make you start to doubt everything else that you're reading. So be very careful with it. 
The second piece of advice is exactly what Zach said. Follow a couple of very good polls that have good representative samples. I could talk about that for just a second and that have a decent track record and are viewed by both their peers and other news sources that you trust as legitimate polling outfits. Okay. And use that as a gauge to say, okay, this is a barometer that I'm going to have trust in and that I'm going to follow a little bit more. Um, and don't think that a YouGov economist poll is the same as a YouGov Yahoo poll. Somebody literally just tweeted this out a few minutes ago. Uh, Jacob, somebody or other from um, uh, J- Jacob Rashkin just po- just just pointed out that the YouGov put out polling for the uh, economist and for Yahoo on the same platform during the same time frame. One showing a D Democrats plus seven on the generic ballot and the other one showing a Republican plus four on the generic ballot. And that confuses people and it makes them think, am I crazy? Are these all lies? Is the polling inaccurate? The truth of the matter is I think that tweet was a little irresponsible because he should know better. Every instrument is created for its own purpose. And that's kind of the third point that I'm going to leave you with. And that is this. Every time you develop a poll, and what that means is people like Zach and myself (laughs) who sit down and we actually write the questions for a poll. And it's a very methodical process. There's certain words you do use. There's certain words you don't use. There's certain questions you put in certain order to not bias the rest of the survey. In fact, I'll probably have a pollster on the show uh, in the next couple of weeks to talk a little bit about how this is done because it is very helpful. Um, but it can be very, very overwhelming if, if you, if, if you try to catch up with this and apply it, uh, to all of these polls that are happening in the middle of the election cycle. But there are different methodologies that we, um, have learned are not quite as good anymore. For example, there's no such thing as a landline poll anymore because there aren't enough landlines. Online panels, which are exclusively done, uh, with certain demographics online have some strengths. Most of them have pretty big weaknesses. A combination of using cell phones and online panels and maybe a smattering of landlines can give you a really good methodological response to these representative samples that we're trying to find. Um, So what I really want you to do is if you start feeling overwhelmed and start feeling fearful or angry or distrustful of polls, step away from them because it means you're consuming too much of it. And remember that each one of these things are not to be looked at as anything more than a data point in a longer-term trend. So what we have started to do in the industry in order to get a more accurate reflection, because there are so many polls out there, is we start to aggregate polls and we start to look at a poll of polls. And uh, if that sounds even more confusing, it's kind of like a Wikipedia model of getting a definition of something, right? It's not exact, but it's close enough, and it shows you the trend line that you're looking for in real time. For somebody who knows what they're doing, and I kind of think that I, I do know what I'm doing, uh, it can be very, very useful. Uh, for people who um, um, who who don't, um, it can be overwhelming and extremely confusing, sometimes angering and dispiriting. So if you um, uh, are, are interested again, and I, and I hope I haven't I hope I haven't confused the issue anymore. But I do want you to know that there are polls. I will tweet some out uh, that I uh, recommend uh, watching. Um, but don't, don't, last thing, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll end on this. Don't get stuck in the habit 
of following the horse race. Okay. And the horse race is who's ahead and who's behind. And I've been saying this for a couple of years. If you've been following me, I'd be actually tweeted it again today. What I'm looking for is movement and there's no good or bad movement. All there is, is movement and something directionally. What do I mean by that? What I mean is when I see a 10 point swing of 18 to 25 year olds moving towards the Democrats, it tells me that there's the potential for the campaign to actually reach out, communicate and get there with them. And that's why I'm saying these races could be closer. The Democrats are showing now that they are in the hunt. If I saw if I saw Joe Biden trying to get 65-year-old non-college educated men in Arkansas, I would say you're out of your mind. Why? Because there hasn't been any movement with that demographic at all for 15 or 20 years. Biden is never going to win that group. So stop trying. Does that make sense? Hope that makes sense. It does make sense, and the whole media diet concept is something that's uh, useful for all of us, right? Yes. Yeah, it's good for your mental health. Don't don't consume too much of this stuff because it makes you more susceptible to disinformation, which, by the way, is a very real thing, and it's going to be in a fevered pitch because the, the Russians um, are doing what the Russians are doing. The right-wing media ecosystem are, are going to start spilling a lot of this information into into the ecosystem because their numbers are not good at the moment. You have to be really, really careful about how you're consuming that uh, information, what information you're, you're reading and pulling um, is something you've got to be very, very um, judicious about if you're going to allow yourself to, to kind of go down that rabbit hole. So thanks, Gene, for the question. Did you have another one? No, that's why I asked because I was thinking about the Russian misinformation today. But thanks mm-hmm. for the answer, and I'll listen to the rest of it. Thanks, Gene, for the question. I really appreciate it. Uh, if you've got any other questions, guys, just jump into the queue. Um, hoping there will be a bunch because there's so much stuff happening. I do want to explain one other dynamic, Zach, and then ask uh, your thoughts on this, and that is this. Um, I'm seeing for the first time a differential that is quite significant between Joe Biden's numbers, which make no mistake about it, they're not good. His approval ratings are sitting in the high 30s, sometimes low 30s. Um, and low 40s range, which is which is a pretty bottomed out range to be sitting at for an incumbent president right now. It's not great positioning. Okay, but what I'm also seeing is the Democrats have really never been in a negative two or a negative three position in the congressional ballot. And if that sounds a little wonky and nerdy, folks, what what that really means is that people are discerning between the president and his approval rating in his job. And the Democrats in Congress, or maybe it's more accurate to say they aren't necessarily happy with Joe Biden, but they're scared to death that the Republicans could take over Congress and there's no way that they're going to have it. So they're going to consciously go in. And even if they are a, a don't like Joe Biden, will go in and vote for the Democrats as a check, a negative partisanship move against the Republicans taking power. But I've never seen the differentials that I've seen um thoughts, Zach, on, on what that might mean, or if you're seeing the same thing. Yeah, I, I mean, actually, I, I view these these sort of favorable, unfavorable in a slightly different way, which is to say I, I consider Joe Biden's support numbers to generally be soft, whereas the unfavorables on President Trump were legitimately people didn't like him. I think that the Joe Biden unfavorables are more about expectation 
this sense that there was this hope of a total return to normalcy. I mean, the expectations, by the way, of Barack Obama were also sky high, but this, this return to normalcy, uh, that there would be this transformational work on voting rights and a number of other issues that didn't manifest. There was a lot of actually positive stuff that came out in the first few months of the administration on the economic side uh, or on the recovery side, I should say. And, and this overall recovery or return to norms was was good. I mean, you're not turning on the television every night to wonder what the president just did or said. So I consider the unfavorables about expectation, which is why I can see the difference between the congressional generic and the president himself, who's a figurehead. Secondly, I also think that we've moved further away, and I'm sure you've done plenty of social science research to prove this, from pure party identity anyway, in the sense that that you can differentiate the president, and you saw this very much with Trump. People were Trump voters. They were not Republican voters, those that were mm-hmm. so aligned with, with Trump. People right. differentiating the president than uh, their individual members of Congress or even United States senator or sort of the macro governance Level. Lastly, he was elected. Um, I mean, there was much more excitement, say, for uh, Mayor Pete's campaign or some of the other candidates. But there was also this overarching fear of electability. And when we were talking about the work that I did on on Fox all the time, I was on Fox. Um, they were the, the messaging, the ecosystem messaging was trying to make Joe Biden into something that he wasn't from a narrative standpoint. He had a, he had a strong enough narrative, I think of just being a, an overall decent guy. But, you know, there, there was discussion about his past or gaffes or whether various uh, leadership issues on certain policy things. I didn't share those concerns that obviously were being said on Fox. But what I'm saying is that he as an individual never had the same level of excitement or movement basis that Bill Clinton did in 92 or, or Obama did in 08, which eroded pretty significantly in 12, or even some of the primary candidates that he went against that I think people voted for him anyway, in order to ensure that they just wouldn't have Trump. So your statement about that the real motivating factor is ensuring that the other side didn't win, Joe Biden embodied that. But as a result, I'm not surprised his numbers are where they are, because he wasn't rolling in with with 80 percent strong support for him as an individual, as -hmm. opposed to just it was him coming in to replace the, the, I mean, in essence, it was boiling water and he was the saucer. It was getting poured in. He was going to bring this sense of normalcy. But then there was expectation with both houses of Congress of much greater uh, legislative successes. There was some in the beginning that didn't pan out. I think that that's where you're seeing his favorabilities be where they are. So I'm going to uh, throw some hypotheticals at you, Zach, because you you again you you occupy this really cool space, which is you've been an advisor to House Democrats, you've been an advisor to Senate Democrats, you you've been an advisor to Democratic presidents. It's it's we're heading into July of, of the midterm cycle. And there's some strengths that you've got with the issues matrix moving towards uh, Roe Wade, which is mobilizing people. The gun issue is front of mind. You've got the June 6th stuff about to wrap up that has been, I think, by all estimations, pretty powerful stuff. But you've got this really, really big specter of inflation that most voters are still saying is the top issue on their minds. You're brought in to bring the Democrats in the House home, what do you, what do you tell them? What, what, how do you advise? I'm a small question, I know. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but, but you're brought in, Zach, and they're saying, okay, what, what, do, you, what do we do? What, what are the things you got to do? What are the things you got to stay away from? 
Look, Mike, as you know, I mean, the House of Representatives, in some respects, can be won more on whether or not the local congressman is good at constituent work, just as right. much as whether or not people can. So at the Very end of the day, point. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, the, the, these guys and gals need to be doing their own job. I mean, they actually need to be doubling down on their district's interests. Point in, uh, case in point, in 2008, the economy... During the, as you know, the last couple of months in the election, uh, I mean, took one of the largest hits that it's taken since the great, since the uh, recess, uh, the uh, depression, as you know. But what we were in Pennsylvania, which was probably the most important swing state at the time, our door-to-door canvassers were hearing much more fears about health care and health access, and in particular in some of the more rural areas like Johnstown, Altoona media markets and stuff. So we started running ads specifically about that, not about the economy, because the economy Mm -hmm. to the people on the ground that we were talking to was manifesting a fear of loss of health care because they were losing their job much more than this kind of grander idea of of what what the economy means. So being able to have this local to state to national messaging, I think, is really important, really sub-targeting within media markets in a way that saturates it with a relevant message to them and driving up turnout with local initiatives or state initiatives that really get your base out and some of the independents out in a way that they wouldn't normally be. I mean, some of these areas that are just a plus two or plus three, it really doesn't take much of a turnout. And also, by the way, Trump isn't on the ballot. I mean, the motivational factor on the other side, I mean, we have these generic ballots, but the motivational factor uh, for those that are more episodic voters on the Republican side just isn't there. These are not Republican voters or Trump voters. He's not on the ballot. Uh, that's why he got creamed in their own midterms as well um, in 2018. And so I think that there is a significant opportunity for local related messaging. If I was advising the national, related, uh, national Democrats, first thing I'd say is take care of your own house. Make sure that you're going out of your way to attend the events and do constituent services to relay what local messaging is needed. So if you're doing DNC buys or any sort of air cover buys, they may, they may not be about inflation or gas prices, Mike. They may be about something that's really micro to that area. You're just trying to move a couple points anyway. I'd be coordinating with state parties and state legislatures and governors where you have control about initiatives that can be placed uh, across the uh, counties or states in order to help drive out turnout as well. And the president should be giving speeches about these issues uh, so that he can make sure that he cares about it. But he also needs to be hitting up markets where he can still drive up turnout, whether that's certain areas of Georgia or some of these other competitive races. I don't exactly know. I haven't seen those inside numbers as to where he does have that strength. But he did do well, generally speaking, with some of the Af- uh, some uh, in particular older African-American voters. And so maybe going down to Georgia and some of these other places so he can be useful would also be good. Guys, you're getting some really good gold nuggets here from somebody who's been uh, in the trenches on this stuff. And it's we're going to talk uh, in just a second about what that actually means, because coordinating coordinating between uh, a state party, a local party, the county party, a presidential campaign, the House Democrats, the, the, the Democratic Governors Association and the Democratic Senatorial Committee um, is, is a is a big job because most people don't realize this. Oftentimes. Each one of these Democratic groups at each level have very different interests and very different strategic priorities, and more often than not, they conflict with one another. And so to kind of make all of that stuff uh, work is 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 a trick. It's where it takes somebody who's really 
uh, skilled at not just the people side of it, but the data side of it, and really understand how to run campaigns at each level of government, which is why I'm appreciating your time here, Zach. Real quickly, you all are listening to Mic Drop here on the Get Call-In app. Uh, taking your phone calls, we're talking with Zach Friend, a former advisor to both Barack Obama. And I, do I want to say Bill Clinton? Did you work in the Clinton White House also? I did. I was in the Council of Economic Advisors in the Clinton White House at the very Man, end. you look like you're 30, but you're like 150 years old, which green is really team, fascinating. Green, green <laughs> good moisturizer and coastal yeah. air out in Santa Cruz. So good for you. We've got another question. M is going to jump up. Um, one second and make sure you um turn the mute button off when i bring you up on stage and you're there thank you so much a really quick question yeah why is uh and we're always reading about internal polling to the different parties and how is that different how is it collected differently is it more or less accurate like what is special and useful about internal polling that's not made public God, that's a fantastic question. See, I told you, Zach, my people, are, they ask really, really good questions. Um, I, I'll, I want to take a crack at that, but do you want to you jump at it first? Look, internal polling allows you to ask questions that you wouldn't, that the public polls wouldn't ask for one. You're also testing very specific things about your candidate and the other candidate, uh, including messaging situations. Think of it as uh, your own private focus group opportunity of between 500 and 1,000 or 2,000 voters, depending upon the size of, of, and scope of it, they are used, um, Mike can get into the details of this, but they're usually used to amplify uh, strength, even where strength doesn't necessarily exist. I mean, so you have to take them with a grain of salt when you see internal polling released or leaked. Um, it, it is something that you would do just as like a fundraising or, or strength kind of situation. We're within the margin of error in a race that you you know never had a chance, like Amy McGrath kind of situation. But it does allow you to ask the questions that generally public polling doesn't necessarily ask that might be very specific to inoculation situations or uh, messaging strength situations on behalf of your candidate. But but might go ahead and, and amplify. No, Zach. Question? I, yeah. What is, an inoc- what is an inoculation situation? I don't know what that means. I apologize. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was uh, that was a little bit inside baseball. I meant so. So say you've got a candidate who uh, some focus groups are showing is weak on a certain issue, just like a vaccine, not that we need to get into the vaccine discussion right now, (laughs) since apparently that's a a debated issue nowadays. Um, You you actually try and inoculate in advance against the attacks that you know that your opponent or even the community at large might bring up against you. This was really common in the Obama world because, I mean, obviously you're running the first African-American candidate. There was a lot of of uh, whisper campaigns against him. And one of the things that, that he, I thought, was really good at doing was was acknowledging what was in the room at the very beginning of his speeches, or as he would say, acknowledge, let's say what's true first. But the truth was also something that takes the way of kind of inoculating you against an attack or deflating something that might be in the room. Got it. So, yeah, real quick, and again, this is really good stuff, and, and if we do ask or, or we do start to use terminology that, that doesn't make sense, just like M did, just jump in there and say, what, what does that mean? Because that is really helpful, and I'll give you a couple of real-life examples on inoculation strategies in just a second, but what I want to, do want to say is this. Um, there, the, the question, the first question is a really, really good one, which is, you know, what are, what are these internal polls? The first is, if you see anything from an internal poll – as Zach said, take it with a grain of salt because you're seeing it because people want you to see it. The campaign wants you to see it. And so you've really got to be careful with what is being put out there. 
The second is an internal poll. Remember, the objectives of a political campaign are to win. The objectives of a public poll are to show you what public opinion and public sentiment is more broadly. So when I'm polling internally for a campaign or a candidate or a PAC, what I'm trying to do is develop a message strategy with the right demographics and come to the right understanding of what I should be talking about, where, how, when, and how much money I should be spending to punch through with the right people in the right amount. There is no public poll that is trying to do that. And so internally, when I'm looking at a campaign, I really am quite dismissive of all the public polls because they don't have any idea what my strategy is. They have no idea how deep I'm going into what are called the crosstabs. I may be looking in my own polling at how women are responding to the row question, 18 to 25-year-old women specifically. Maybe I'm looking at 18, 25-year-old Hispanic women. Maybe I'm looking at 45 and older college-educated white women, right? And because I know that I need that group to perform at the numbers that I need to get to where I need to go. That's not what you're going to see from the the Quinnipiac poll. You're not going to see that from the Marist poll. You're not going to see that from any other survey. That's only going to be my strategic instrument and my strategic guide. So the the objectives, the very objectives of what each poll and internal and public-facing poll are, are completely different. So um, real quickly to the point on inoculation, if you've vetted what we call vetting your candidate, if you know the weaknesses of your candidate, usually because you've pulled it before or you're hearing things bubbling up, you absolutely must have some sort of an inoculation strategy to get out front of it to drive a certain message about it. Okay? That's a huge part of what we do in campaigns so that when the inevitable attacks come, we have already built a wall around those attacks for our candidate or for our cause to make sure that there is not any sort of uh, damage to public trust or confidence. So let me let me let me use this hypoth- uh, the, uh, real life example in the past couple of days. Cassidy Hutchinson, she brings out this issue. She's the special witness, right? The secret witness that shows up. Nobody knows who it's going to be. They clearly, because they're not a political campaign, have not done anything to inoculate her. And she is so credible as a messenger, so powerful is her testimony, that everybody starts to see, both in public-facing and internal polls, clearly because of their reaction, that it's having an effect. So what does the Fox News crew have to do, and what do the former Trump staffers have to do to prevent this testimony from completely bowling them over? They have to destroy the messenger. They have to attack her, and that's exactly what you're seeing happening on Fox News and the right-wing media. They're focusing like a laser on the fact that there's no way Trump could have you know, put his arm around the neck of the driver of the car going to the Capitol. They're going dis- to you know, distract everybody on these weak points in her messaging. She was a low-level staffer. Nobody even knew who she was. All of these things are designed to undermine her credibility. They didn't have the benefit of coming in and proactively setting up her credibility because she was a surprise witness. Now, we're going to see how that plays out, but that's what Zach is talking about when he's saying you've got to go in proactively, establish that credibility. You saw it with Judge Ludage, for example. This was Ted Cruz's mentor. This was somebody who was an icon as a conservative judge 
who is now speaking out against what uh, was happening uh, in, in this insurrection. Uh, and no one, by the way, has since attacked Judge Ludage because they inoculated him appropriately from the inevitable attacks that are hitting now Cassidy Hutchison. So I hope that provides some explanation, M. Yes, thank you. That's really, really helpful. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to also say that I put in the chat, there was yep. a politicology two-part that you did with Ron Steslow about polling and numbers. Yeah. And so I put the link there just because I had learned oh, awesome. that. And so I added great. the link in case anyone else needs that. Thank you M, both so much. M, thank you for the great question. Everybody, there's a link there if you want to listen to some of the number stuff I'm talking on uh, with politicology on. I've, I've been speaking for a long time on kind of what the polls mean. So thank you for, for, for doing that, M. I really appreciate it. And thanks for uh, always joining uh, the discussions here. Thank you. Okay. Uh, JMS, next call. You're up on stage. Just go ahead and unmute and ask away. Hey, first of all, thanks, Mike and Zach, for doing this. This is really helpful and informative. It's um, I've been trying to be a faithful listener to these, and it's really beneficial and teaching me a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. So how, I guess my question, and I joined late, so I apologize, this may have already been addressed. How are the people that participate in polling qualified Mm. And where are they obtained from? I mean, is there a pool of, of people that participate in polls or where is this demographic that they draw from? <laughs> That's a great question. Jack, can I take a stab at it real quick? Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Yeah. So um, there's a couple things you need to know about polls because a lot of times when I start pushing things out about polling data, the first thing people say is we should have learned from 2016 not to trust the polls. Um that's actually not accurate. The poll of polls were almost dead on saying that Hillary Clinton would win the the popular vote, which, by the way, is what the she polls – She did win. She did win the popular vote. So the polling was accurate. Um, pe- people you know, say, well, she – but there's obviously an electoral college implication, which polls do not test, and that's a huge weakness in polling in a presidential campaign is you're polling a bunch of people, and if you're going to have a representative sample – you have to have it what we call weighted towards certain demographics. It has to be 50% women. It has to be 50% men. It needs to have about an 11% reg, uh, representation of Hispanics. You have to have a certain people at certain income levels, certain people at certain education levels, certain people with a geographic distribution. And you've got to be very uh, – the, the better you're weighting, the better representation of your sample, the more accurate – your survey is going to be, your polling is going to be. Um, One of the other really difficult things is determining turnout, is which of those groups are going to turn out and at what percentage. Because if you get that off by two, three, four points, you could have a wildly inaccurate poll. So let's get back to your question. How do we know who to call? Well, we call registered voter rolls in representation of each of the states that meet the ethnic, gender, income, education, and any other criteria we can top on top of that. If we get just that, we can get a pretty accurate scientific survey done. When I say scientific, it's a science. It's not guessing. We're not looking at like chicken innards here or tea leaves or rolling the dice. This is, this is a science, okay? It's scientific. doesn't mean it's 100% accurate, but there are margins of error. It always, it always shocks people and sometimes angers them when I tell people with an a sample of 800 respondents, I can get a pretty accurate reflection of the entire 370, 380 million people 
in the United States. So the, the normal response to that is, well, I've never been called. None of my friends have ever been called. And the reality is it's you're more likely to be struck by lightning than to be called by one of these, these surveys. Um, but you don't need to be in order to have it be science and scientifically based. So um, voter rolls, if you're a registered voter, that's the, normally the only way you will be called. There are still polling companies that do non-registered voters. Pew, for example, the Pew Research, which I believe is the gold standard of polling, is, is um, gauges American sentiment, whether you're registered or not. They're looking for where uh, public opinion is for all Americans. Then they will do a subset on registered voters. And then in campaigns, we do something else. We do what we call likely voters, which means we look at your vote history. We don't take um, – we don't know how you voted, but we do know that you voted. We do know that the county in your state counted your ballot, and that gives us a sign that you are more likely to vote than not. And we tighten – what we do is it's called tightening that universe. We narrow that universe down to the most likely voters and then develop a sample, a representative sample of the community we're trying to pull, whether it's a country, a state, a county, a town, and then scientifically with a sample size between usually 800 to 1,200 voters, we can get a great poll done with a margin of error of about two or three points. Hope that was helpful. Yeah, it was helpful. I guess my follow-on question, I understand where um, the data comes from registered voters, but you mentioned Pew. Where would they obtain their their polling data from? Do they just randomly contact people or is there a pool of people that are willing to speak to Pew? How is that fettered out? Yeah, that's a good question. If you're polling non-registered voters, there are data firms that will sell you uh, data based off of people that meet your certain criteria. So if I need white men between 45 and 55 to meet my sample requirements, I can buy a list in Arkansas or Montana or California. I can get the, that list purchased from a data firm. And there are actually firms that, that create these universes for polling outfits that you can just buy a representative sample from. And they come off of you know just data that people can, can acquire. I don't want to say essentially anywhere, but essentially anywhere. Okay. That helps. Thank you very much. I appreciate sure. it. You Thanks. bet. Great. Yeah, great question. And thanks for asking. Um, if you've got any other questions, folks in the audience, jump on. This has been great. The interactiveness is really helpful, I think, for, for Zach and myself. Um, Zach, what do, you, what, do you, what do you think the Senate – how do you think the Senate looks? Much different than the House? Or are you looking at it that close yet? I think that I, – I mean, we're talking about two seats. I mean, I think you're going to see an unbelievable amount of money spent. And there's an opportunity, obviously, for pickup in Pennsylvania – uh, in particular for the Democrats, I should say. And God, if the Quinnipiac polling, although early, is correct, I mean, if you can maintain Georgia the way it is, I mean, I think that, that there is, um, in some respects, a better chance to maintain the Senate than there is the House, which uh, is a pretty remarkable thing in particular, should there be something on the Supreme Court that would come up again in the next couple of years, unlikely, but but who knows. Um, and one one. Uh, follow-on point, actually, to uh, the previous caller's question just regarding where they find polar, uh, where, where the population comes from. The other thing, too, is just to remember that uh, when campaigns are targeting you, basically everything about people can be purchased. It's pretty terrible what the privacy regs are in the United States, and so even purchase history. So you may 
be registered, for example, as a no party preference or an independent, depending upon the state. But I mean, you may go to the grocery store and, and, and use your club card and some of this data can be purchased that actually allows campaigns to try and make uh, determinants about where your political leanings may actually be and target you on messaging associated with that. If you're a guns and ammo, for example, magazine subscriber, you own a Toyota Prius, you may be registered a certain way of, of not having a specific preference, but that's also a way that you get targeted by campaigns. I know it's a little bit different from the polling question, but just to go to show that when Mike was talking about crosstabs and how deep some of these campaigns go into finding out who the voters are and what it is they need from them, they're not just going purely on a party ID either. They're also trying to identify likely voters that may be identifying with no party, but then going into certain things to make a determinant of where you may lean as a result of certain things that people purchase about you. Very helpful. Zach, I know we're running up on the six o'clock hour and you've got a hard stop because you actually have to, I think, chair a board of supervisors meeting tonight, um, which you probably got to do a little bit of prep for. Um, any last thoughts? I mean, I just, I, 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 we could talk to you all night, especially because of, and I'm going to have you back, by the way, this is not the last time we're going to get Zach on board, but um, anything you want to kind of, kind of leave us with as you, as you kind of have to drop off and do some important yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean, first, first, Mike, thank you. But uh, even more importantly, just thank all of it. When I hear these questions and I hear this level of interest in education, it just, it keeps, it keeps me going for my hope for democracy. Cause it's hard sometimes when you, see what's happening at the national level, you just feel this erosion. And, and to me, what keeps me up at night, Mike, we've had this conversation a lot, is that it feels like there's this slow, almost dripping erosion of reality of institutional norms and the truth that's really fed mm-hmm. by these media ecosystems we were talking about. And how we translate the world out of those silos is really going to be important because you were talking about the, the J6 committee there's a lot of people that, A, don't know that it's going on, B, don't care it's going on, or C, because of the way that their ecosystem is portraying it, have a very different understanding. They're the, the sort of, we hold these truths to be self-evident, as the framers said, or the Declaration of Independence. I mean, what are the truth? What is the truth anymore? Is really being uh, difficult to discern through these media ecosystems. And that, to me, is, is really the thing that, that needs to be continued to be worked on. We're talking about granular tactics at a campaign level, but at the end of the day, People are consuming information in ways they never have before. Massive self-selection bias as a result of that. How do we get back to a collective truth is, is uh, in some respects, more important for the future of democracy than a lot of these other institutional norms that we're talking about? Um, Zach, thank you so much. I mean, thanks for everything that you've done as, as a public servant in every capacity. It's so rare to have somebody who, again, has been a, a professional at, at your level um, but but also has decided to kind of run for office and done it successfully for uh, for a good you know good run and I know that it's not easy and you've seen the tone and tenor of of the public kind of coming at you just because you want to get a road built in the right place and it's 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 a it's a huge sacrifice now it's no longer just service and kind of doing your, your civic duty it's coming at a much bigger price I know we've talked a lot about. Um, about what that means for the body politic and the future of this country. And, and I'm just grateful that you're doing what you're doing and grateful for your friendship. And we're going to have you back. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for the kind words. And, and anger is a currency right now in, in our society to the degree that each one of us can contribute to the opposite of that. It, it's better for all of us. But thanks, Mike, for the opportunity to be on tonight's show. Yeah, appreciate it. And what's your Twitter handle real quick so folks can follow you? It's ZachFriend55 because at one point I owned a 55 Chevy until I had to sell it so my wife could go to law school. What are you going to do? Look at that. Good investment. Great investment. Yeah. 
at ZachFriend55. Thanks, buddy. Good luck tonight. And um, for everybody else, questions, let's go ahead and take questions. I don't want to talk kind of into into the mist too much here or go on too much longer. I know people have got to get to their families and get to the rest of of uh, the activities of wrapping up their day on the East Coast. But, you know, we've got a good group here, some great questions. And if you've got any other questions, um, shoot them. This is, this is the time. Uh, shoot them at me and let's uh, let's see if we can't get any anything answered for you. Okay, you're up. No more GOP. Love that name, by the way. I, I, I know. Thank you, Mike. Um, so here's, here's the last thing. So you had been saying, you know, that you really, that the Democrats weren't really in the game. Yeah. And now you feel like they are. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. Because I'll be honest, I'm like taking deep breaths into a paper bag most days. I'm like, yeah. oh my God. So do you really, do you think we can hold on to it? Do you, do you think we really could maybe hold the House and the Senate? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So look, let me let me also say this too, and, and I think again, people who have been kind of following and and, and watching my work and and, and been supportive um, know this. Okay, I am very optimistic about where we are heading, and I know that sounds very odd and very peculiar, but when you understand that America is going through some of the most significant and profound changes, not in just our history as a country, but in human history. We are moving from the industrial age into the information age, the digital age. And a lot of our institutions that we built, not just as Americans, but as human beings over the course of the past 300 years, they simply aren't working that well. But if you look at the history of our species, we are an extraordinarily adaptive creatures. We figure things out. And one of our greatest abilities is to innovate. And we're going to. I'm not going to say that it's going to be easy. And I'm not going to say that it's going to be, uh, that it's not going to be, uh, you know, uncomfortable. It is. It is. And as I've also said, again, people who, who, who followed know this. I think that the next two to six years are going to get even bumpier than they are now. But I do, I'm absolutely convinced that we are going to come out of this as being a better people. Okay. So having said that, up until 72 hours ago, I was not seeing the Biden administration, the House Democrats, or the Senate Democrats engaging into a campaign mode or framework that I felt comfortable with, given the dynamics that were happening in all the data, all the polling, all the evidence, all the narrative. They were not, they were not bringing forth a competent plan to execute a victorious campaign cycle. I wasn't seeing it. Okay. A lot of people were critical because I was saying it. I was saying it on Ron's show on politicology. You see me saying it on Twitter. A lot of people get really angry with me and say, you know, you know, your Republican is showing and how dare you. And like I said, I, I'm here because I'm concerned about the future of our country. I'm, I'm not concerned about the future of the Democratic Party. At this moment, I want the Democratic Party to win because I'm, I'm, I'm concerned and scared about the Republican Party. And it's clearly the best choice. It's clearly the best choice. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Okay, so let's let's get that straight. But when I'm giving advice and when I'm saying this is what the Democrats should be doing, it's as an objective observer. I'm not trying to get a job with the Democrats. I'm not trying to get a job with Democratic candidates. Okay, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in seeing well-run, executed, uh, well-performed campaigns to protect our country from sliding into an authoritarian regime. And that's what we're facing, folks. Okay. So 
what happened was up until 72 hours, well, 72 hours, 72 hours is when the polling really started to break free. And it was because, and I'll take them backwards. We were seeing the, the, the road decision was, was, uh, was an earthquake. It was a political jolt that, that broke through all the calcified numbers and demographic groups that had become cemented during the Biden administration. Young people didn't like him. Independents didn't believe he was competent. Key demographics in the Democratic Party themselves did not feel like the country was both in, heading in the right direction or that what was being run was being run competently. That was clear. The data was clear. His numbers were horrible. They were low. I was saying that. People are saying, you know, how dare you criticize the president? Whatever. Okay. That's what was going on. Uh, Roe Wade was something that was unforeseen up until a month ago. Okay. The Biden administration did not plan that. That happened. And politically, while it's extremely damaging to, to women and to the country generally, Politically, it was a gift to the Democrats because it awakened all of their key constituencies, but it didn't happen in a silo. Okay, Prior to that, the Uvalde massacre happened. Again, this was not planned by the Democrats. It was an unfortunate, horrible reality that came because of inaction by the Republican Party. Okay, That shocks the consciousness of the nation too. And there's another horrifying moment that shows that the Republicans are out of step. Now, those two issues are very significant. But add on top of that, this refrigerator hum, for those of you that follow politicology, this refrigerator hum that I've been talking about for six or eight months, this slow, steady, methodical drip of leaking evidence that has been a masterclass in destroying your political opposition executed by one Liz Cheney. Phenomenal work. Phenomenal, phenomenal work. As I've said many, many times on Twitter, don't fuck with the Cheneys. They know what they're doing, okay? You don't fuck with the Cheneys. She's going to lose her primary, but she will save the republic, and that is what she is concerned about. She, incidentally, is going to be speaking at the Ronald Reagan Library, which is about a mile from where I grew up, um, tonight on a speech called The Time for Choosing, which I think will be a condemnation of what the Republican Party has become over the past six years. Will that have a material effect? I don't know. But one of the things that really frustrates me is I get really hyper angry over the fact that people still think we're trying to get 50% of the Republican Party. Folks, it's been six years. We're trying to move 4% ban in line numbers, right? For those of you OG listeners, five, six, seven, eight, nine percent single digits. If we're able to consistently keep one to nine percent of Republicans off of voting for the Republican candidate, we are going to have an extraordinarily large impact in the outcome of our, pol our politics and the history of this country. History is made on the margins. You've heard me say that too. So focus on the margins. So three dynamics. Again, sorry about the, the speechifying here. Three dynamics. Roe Wade, Uvalde, January 6th hearings, all coming together at the same time only two of those, uh, only one of those, excuse me, is actually in control of the Democratic Party, but it's led by Liz Cheney. 
Prior to that, remember the transportation bill would have saved Glenn Youngkin. And I was saying, that's just bullshit. That's not going to happen, guys. That's not the way voters think. Your transportation bill isn't going to drive public opinion. No one even remembers that or particularly cares. Doesn't mean it wasn't the right thing to do. It's not what I'm saying. I'm talking to you as a political professional. Nobody remembers the transportation bill. Nobody remembers. Build back better. Remember that? Build back better. It's bleeding on all this issue. No, nobody remembers that. Nobody remembers that. And I was gonna. I was saying that in January, February, March. Don't focus there. You've got to move this. You've got to move that agenda. Understand you've got a responsibility to govern. But politically, damn it, move the issues matrix onto battlefield that you can win on. Move onto the high ground. Attack from a position of strength. And fortunately, fortunately, not because of their own doing, but fortunately, what we have is a position of strength that came about because of the road decision and because of this unfortunate massacre of young children uh, in Texas. And that is what has moved the Democrats back into position. So when I, it's a jump ball. I absolutely believe Zach agrees with me. I think a lot of folks are saying, looking at the numbers, saying, hey, the, the Democrats are back in the game, not because of their own doing, but they are back in the game. So don't, don't fuck it up. Now, I don't have a whole lot of confidence because, I mean, I, I, I've been – you know, running against Democrats pretty successfully for the past 25 years. Now that I'm trying to, you know, beat the Republican Party, and that's an important way to phrase it there, I'm not seeing what I would like to see from the type of battles that I know are going to be engaged. But the fortunate part is the extremism in the Republican Party is breaking through. I mean, I say in the political context, it's fortunate. It's not good for the country. It's not good for our society. But it's good uh, politically, because it's making people realize, oh, shoot, uh, this is serious stuff. These are really bad people. They're very dangerous people. They're threatening my life. They're threatening my friends' rights. They're you know, making our streets unsafe by allowing these type of weapons out there. And, oh, yeah, by the way, they're revolutionaries, and they probably don't belong um, in positions of power. So hope that answer was okay. Hope I got there. Um, that was great, Mike. Thank you so much. And and thank you for doing these. Sure. Absolutely. And again, we'll be doing them more regularly. Uh, jump into the queue if you've got any questions. We've got a good group listening. So it sounds like there's some interest. Uh, I, I doubt you guys want me to keep kind of just speechifying and, and, and talking um, some of the madness that I talk about because it's kind of what I do on Twitter. So you're getting enough of that on Twitter. You probably don't need to hear it. but Or if you do, I want to make sure that I'm getting your, your questions answered. This is your moment. There's you know, no judgment. There's no bad questions. Don't feel like uh, I'm going to be out there saying that's a really dumb question. Um, on basics of, of anything, I want to make sure that you guys have the comfort level that um, I can provide as somebody who does this for a living to explain why we're seeing some of what we're seeing. So if you have any of those questions, um, please jump into the queue. Um, I'll take a little bit of a uh, uh, drink of water if I – if I can, because I've been going on a little bit. Um, hold on one second. All right. Um, I'm back. We're at about the 610, 615 hour. So I'm trying to wrap it up here a little bit because I don't think we're getting any more questions. Um, I do want to mention um, once again, well, maybe I'll wrap up on this. Um, in the next week or so, we are going to see another number 
of polls coming out, probably three or four from reputable sources. If you're following me on Twitter, I'll make sure that um, I'm pointing these out and tie it back to this talk that we're having today. But all that I'm looking for, all that I'm looking for is, well, there's two things I'm looking for, but they're closely related. I'm looking for this generic ballot number. I'm looking to see how many people are moving. I'm looking for movement. Remember, I'm looking for people to see who's moving to the Democratic Party and now saying I'm going to vote for the Democrats. Are they 18 to 25-year-old youth voters? Are they college-educated Republican suburban suburban women that I've talked about at length? Are they Hispanics maybe coming back into the fold? Who are they? That's primarily what I want to know. And I also want to see if this gap between Biden's approval ratings – these low numbers, a low range, and Democrats are holding up on the generic ballot because I think that's not a good sign for Biden, but it's a good sign for the Democrats in the midterms. And it also going to probably shock the world a little bit here by saying this. I think that the maybe I shouldn't say this. I'm not. I'm not going to say that. Um, let, let me because uh, I think it'll make people really nervous, even though it shouldn't. But what I will say is that differential is something that is very, very important because it shows a very discerning voter. It means that people how, who are likely to vote for the Democratic Party but aren't happy with the direction of the country and maybe blame Joe Biden are still going to show up and vote for the Democrats because they're afraid or they're pissed off at the Republicans as a political professional. I don't care what your motivations are as long as you show up in the voting booth and pull the lever for my party, my candidate, whoever the right person is at that moment in time. That's what I'm looking for, and that's what I'm seeing emanating. So I hope that was helpful. I'm going to leave it on that note because I'm not getting anybody else on cue. Thank you guys so much for following and supporting. If you have any other topics or people you want me to bring on the show, send them to me here on this app. You guys are all members now. Subscribe, share it with folks. The bigger the audience, uh, the more helpful it is for me to kind of get the message out. Um, I'm going to be talking a lot more about numbers. That was some of the great feedback that I got from a very close uh, follower that I met here uh, in in the past couple years on campaigns. I think that's uh, the way a lot of you guys got to know me. I think it's what you're looking for from me. I'm going to give you my honest, candid assessment. Sometimes that's going to make you feel better and feel comforted. Sometimes you're going to say, I'm a bad guy, and you'll never uh, listen to anything I ever say again. That's fair. That's politics. Um, I hope you don't because I love the conversation. I love the interaction. But that's going to be, I think, my goal over the course of the next few months is to give a poll-driven, evidence-based explanation of what is happening where because I think, again, that's that was, uh, I think, the best value I provided for you all during the, the presidential campaign um, when we beat Donald Trump, and I'm confident that we can have similar results if we've got a good strategy, a good issues matrix, and if people are on the same page. So with that, have a good night. Thanks for dropping, uh, uh, joining uh, Mike Drop here on Colin. We'll talk to you next Wednesday.